Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beck Esme. Jenny, this week we had a talk by one of our new chief residents, Alan Mordell, and he was giving us some advanced RSI tips. We've talked previously on other podcasts about airway management, but Alan gave a few more pearls that I thought would be good to share. Sound good? Sounds great. You can really never be too prepared for an airway situation. It's totally true. So Alan divided his talk into two general areas of knowledge. He first touched on perhaps a better way to position patients for RSI. And this is the bed up head elevated position or what Alan likes to call the psychiatry position because it does look a little bit like the way that you sit when you're on a psychiatrist's couch. And this is where you're going to keep the head of the bed elevated to about 30 degrees, and that's during both the pre-oxygenation and preparation, as well as during the intubation itself. Now, the evidence for this position comes from the anesthesia literature, and there's several studies over the course of time that showed that this position gives you improved pre-oxygenation. It gives you a longer non-hypoxic apneic time. So once the patient is paralyzed, they're going to stay well oxygenated for a longer period of time. And then it also might even give you an improved glottic view when you're looking with the DL. Yeah, and the theory behind this for the pre-ox and then keeping them non-hypoxic during apneic time is that the chest wall is a little bit brought off of the lungs, allows more of the lung to expand. There's less dependent alveoli. Last year, there was a nice paper in the anesthesia literature, and we'll drop that in the show notes, that compared the occurrence of intubation-related complications in patients who were emergently intubated with the head-up position versus the flat position. The complications they were looking at were difficult intubation, hypoxemia, esophageal intubation, and pulmonary aspiration. Now, this study was a study of patients requiring emergent intubation on the wards or the floors or in the ICU. So we can't for sure say that this study applies directly to our ED patients. But what they found was a a significantly lowered odds of intubation-related complications in patients who are intubated with the head up versus those who are intubated laying flat. Despite the limitations, this is an easy thing for us to bring in, and I've adopted it for all my intubations. We've got a video on the site of how to do this that you can check out. One of the big pitfalls in doing this is the bed height. Sometimes it's hard with the head up to get the patient low enough to the floor so that you can get a good view. The solution? Have a stool at the head of the bed. This gives you the height you need to get a proper line of sight. Now, the bulk of Alan's talk was devoted to induction of RSI in a shocky or kind of hypotensive patient. Now, this is a very scary place to be. As we know, induction takes away the patient's sympathetic drive. And on top of that, going from spontaneous respiration, which is a negative pressure, to mechanical ventilation, which is a positive pressure, is going to increase the intrathoracic pressure and will decrease the patient's venous return. On top of that, induction agents may directly cause smooth muscle relaxation and vasodilation, reducing the blood pressure. Ultimately, almost all patients are going to lose some of their blood pressure during this process. So starting with a patient who is on the cusp already is really scary. One that is hypotensive from the start is downright terrifying. What happens here is you have a tenuous patient, you induce, and the patient codes. All patients are at risk of developing peri-intubation hypotension, but there are some factors that increase that risk. The big ones are patients with LV or RV dysfunction, those with CKD, those with reduced preload, sepsis, and older age. In truth, it's really anyone who's looking sick. 
So what does all of this mean? Assess your patient for their risk of developing hypotension perintubation, but also be ready for it in basically all of your patients. Swami, how do you like to address a patient you are worried about prior to their intubation? It's as simple as resuscitate before you intubate. Now, it sounds easy, but it's obviously a complicated process. In the past, once we determined that an airway was needed, we just went to it. Now I think we're a bit more comfortable on optimizing our pre-intubation parameters, maximizing preload, aggressively pre-oxygenating, and getting the blood pressure into a safe range. So start with fluid loading, put on a nasal cannula with the knob turned all the way up, and then throw on a face mask, non-rebreather with 100% FiO2, or even better if the patient tolerates it, a non-invasive positive pressure ventilation system. If the blood pressure is low, start your pressors, and I'm typically shooting for a map of around 70, knowing that it's going to drop during the intubation. So I'm actually going up to a super normal blood pressure and then assuming it's going to drop a little bit after I push my induction meds. If the blood pressure is on the soft side, I'll hang the presser and wait, knowing that I'm probably going to need it post-intubation. Now, in terms of starting pressors, you obviously have options. Popular options include phenylephrine and epinephrine, either as a push-dose presser or a dirty epidrip. Phenylephrine is often used, particularly in a patient you are going to just need like a transient BP bump or in a patient who is tachycardic. Thoughts on phenylephrine, Swami? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of phenylephrine. It's pure alpha. It's going to increase your vascular resistance. And as a result, it's going to make your blood pressure look better. But the increased afterload is strain on an already taxed heart. Honestly, I think the reason we reach for it is because it's already drawn up in push-dose syringes. So it's easy for us to give, and it's already diluted, so you know what concentration you're giving. I just think it's a suboptimal therapeutic to use. These patients rarely need a transient support in blood pressure. They usually need it a little more prolonged, so I might as well start a drip. I think in essence, we use it because it's easy, but not because it's good. Yeah, I agree. And now that's why epinephrine may actually be a better choice. It is both an alpha and beta agonist. So it not only is going to increase your vascular resistance and blood pressure, but through its beta effect was also going to increase your cardiac output, which in a shocky patient is going to be a good thing. This can be given peripherally as either a push dose presser or a dirty epi drip. And we'll have links in the show notes to tell you how to specifically do both of those things. In addition to tanking the patient up prior to intubation, you can make some changes to your RSI itself in the shocky patient. Any induction agent you use will worsen the blood pressure by decreasing vascular tone, decreasing venous return, or simply by taking away the patient's natural sympathetic drive. It doesn't matter which agent you use, they're all going to do it. The key isn't the agent, it's the dose. Drop your induction dose of any induction med down. How low you go will depend on how hypotensive the patient is. The more unstable, the lower the dose. Remember that your primary responsibility is to intubate the patient without killing them. Amnesia is a secondary concern. I'll typically reach for either ketamine in the 0.3 to 0.5 milligram per kilogram range or atomidate in the 0.05 to 0.1 milligram per kilogram range. If they're really hypotensive, I'll go even lower. And Jenny, if they're super hypotensive, I might skip the induction med altogether. Ketamine is often thought to be the ideal agent because we believe it'll boost the sympathetic drive, leading to improved blood pressure, but that's just simply not true. 
Ketamine increases sympathetic tone by making the patient release more of their own catecholamines. The issue here, though, is that you're already maxed out. You're not going to get more. Your patient is in a catecholaminergic surge. But you are going to relax the patient, which may lead to drops in blood pressure. Again, it's not going to be about the agent. It's going to be about the dose. When it comes to the paralytic, you actually have to increase the dose, and this is because it actually takes longer for the patient to become paralyzed because they have decreased cardiac output, and that paralytic has got to circulate through the entire body. If you're using succinylcholine, I'm typically going with three mg per kg, so a double dose. If I'm going with rocuronium, which is usually what I'm reaching for, I'm going to go with 2.5 mg per kg, again, a double dose. Now, in a shocky patient, do you have a preference for rock versus sucks, or do you still like rock all the time as you normally do? Yeah, I'm pretty much going with rock almost always. It just seems to be the right med for me. And we'll drop a link in the show notes to a blog post on the topic. And Haney Malamet and I just recently published a short article in Annals of EM on this particular topic. So that was a bit of a whirlwind through some intubation pearls. How about some take-home points, Jenny? First, the bed-up head-elevated position for intubation may reduce your intubation-related complications. So consider that for all of your intubations. Second, patients who are hypotensive or at risk of hypotension should be aggressively resuscitated prior to intubation with fluids and a liberal use of pressors. And then last, shocky patients should be intubated with decreased induction agent dose, preferably ketamine, and an increased paralytic dose. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore em. Thanks, and see you all next week. Time.